Genesis 1, 26-27. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the sea of the earth, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the sea of the fish, the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit bears seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till it. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed a man of the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Grant unto us, Father, the grace we need to come to your word and understand. We're all sinners who fall so far short of your glory. But because of your Holy Spirit, we listen and learn. Father, we have committed ourselves to your way. We stand with Job when he declared, My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than daily bread. Lord, minister in our hearts this day and help us to take your truth and apply it in our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want us to stop and look back at the foundation upon which this world was established. We shall examine the creation covenants, the covenant of work, the covenant of grace, the covenant of works, and the covenant of redemption. There is an unmatched relationship between God and his creature. That unique relationship is found in the fact God created man in his own image. Not only did God, through this act of sovereign creation, make man unique, but he also spoke directly to man 
and told him exactly what he expected of him. To prepare this sermon, to give you the best possible understanding of this important aspect of our lives and relationship with our sovereign Lord, I have relied heavily upon the work of another. I have taken the outline with some slight modifications from Dr. O. Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenants. I have also drawn from him in laying out this out for you. We begin with a twofold view of the relationship between God and man. God created man, and he spoke to him, thereby, as Dr. Robertson says, establishing a sovereignly administered life and death bond. This is what we commonly refer to as the covenant of grace with its two aspects of works and redemption. This bond between God and man has two basic aspects. The first deals with man's responsibility to his creator. The second deals with the more specific duties of man in Eden under the God-ordained probation. You must understand, both of these areas of the covenant of grace have some very far-reaching implications. It is a familiar to think too narrowly about God's covenant. To do so has caused many to miss the blessings of the covenant relationship. Let's look at the structure of the covenant of grace and then at the focus of the covenant. I don't believe you can deny this world in which we live is structured in many, many ways. God set a structure for everything he created in it. The planets are held in place by gravity. The sun gives warmth so plants can grow and as they grow, they eat up carbon dioxide and make oxygen for animals to breathe. The atmosphere protects us against <clears throat> the harmful rays of the sun. And you know, we could just go on and on and on. Man is a part of this wonderful creation. And as a part of it, he is responsible to obey the ordinances that come with it. In this covenant of grace, there are three basic ordinances given. Some we call mandates at times. They are marriage, labor, and worship, as understood through the keeping of the Sabbath. Each one of these commands stands as a pillar of the very fabric of God's structure and creation and are to be adhered by all men. The first of these creation ordinances from mankind is marriage. God said it's not good that man should be alone. So God made man a helper, one that would correspond appropriately to him, that is, to be his equal. This gives to marriage as a creation mandate some pretty far-reaching implications because marriage is an ordinance of the sovereign creative act of God. We see that scripture removes all doubt about its sanctity. Marriage was ordained by our creator from the very beginning of creation and has a very important purpose. From scripture, we find several far-reaching and very important conclusions concerning marriage. First, the one is realized in marriage, relating to how, how the woman was made and being taken from the man. Now, we all know the story. God took a rib from man and created woman. 
because the woman was taken from a part of her husband, each man thereafter must leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Thus the two shall become one. This oneness is not talking about the process of marital consummation. It is referring to the oneness described by that abiding union ordained by God for marriage. It was this very concept that Jesus used to disavow divorce. He said the two were meant to be one flesh from the very beginning, and that separation was not to be normal. Jesus says that the man and woman are no longer two, but are one. This is because God, the creator, has joined them together. So what we see by this is the emphasis on this interpersonal fusion achieved by marriage. Marriage is ordered by creation for the purpose of uniting two into one. Second, the internal structure of marriage shows the purpose of marriage. God said it was not good that man should be alone. So he made him a helper that corresponded to him. The word translated from the Hebrew into this term corresponded to him conveys the idea of one who stands in front of or face to face with. In other words, it suggests the idea of equality of persons. Please understand, man and woman also correspond physically to each other. But the important idea of corresponding is found in their place before God. This is really important that you understand this. The woman was created to be a helper of man. She is to help man bring glory and honor to God. You must be careful to understand this role of helper according to the scripture. Yes, woman is the helper, a helper corresponding to man. The whole of God's creation could serve as man's helper. But nowhere was there a part of creation found that corresponded to man. One that stood equally with him before God. That's the corresponding we're talking about. God created the woman for man to correspond to him in a way that made her the appropriate help he needed. This wonderful distinctness of woman it shows she is just as significant in the eyes of God as is the man. Why was this necessary? Because only as one equal before God could she correspond to man. Scripture clearly shows in Matthew twenty-two thirty that in heaven they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why is this? Because once the consummate state becomes reality, once she is glorified in heaven, the state of woman as helper to man is ended. So she, in the state of glorification, bearing God's image in her own person, enjoys the consummation in her own completeness. She stands in heaven before God in the same boldness as man and partakes of the same merits of Jesus as any man does. However, while he, in this world, she has the duty to share with her husband the responsibility to bring the earth under his subjection to the glory of God. She is to be his partner in bringing into this world a culture that glorifies God. This creation ordinance tells man 
that he is to multiply and fill the earth. This holds some very significant implications for the man in the marriage relationship. Dr. Robinson explains it this way. The man must love and cherish his wife. He is responsible to care for her as she fulfills her role of bearing children. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the husband is to love his wife even as Christ loves his church and gives himself for her. The man has the duty of acting as head in the marriage relationship. Men must understand this does not mean to act as a tyrant, but as the saving head of the wife and family. Paul explains a little deeper this concept in 1 Corinthians 11, 11 through 12. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. You can see in this that men are not independent of women. Man owes his very existence to her. Now, does this not sound like something that's appropriate for Mother's Day? What we learn from this is that there are two forms of man's being, and they are both mutually dependent on one another. Does this not show that all creation indeed originates in God? This shows that the internal order of marriage is determined by God. The woman is the helper. She's the one that brings up the help that's needed to carry through this work. She corresponds to man, and he is the head over her, loving her as himself. Third, I want you to consider some sexual aberrations as they apply to the creation order. God created an order that applies to men and women and their relationship. That order cannot be ignored or it cannot be changed by man. The idea of polygamy, more than one wife at a time, is in direct violation of this creation mandate. Christ said, from the beginning, God indicated the two shall be one flesh. He didn't say the three or four should become one flesh. When a third party is introduced into the union, it's very destructive. Christ says in Matthew 5, 31 through 32, when the unity is destroyed by a third party, divorce by the injured party is permissible. You must understand, divorce contradicts the creation order of marriage. God said the two were to be yoked together. No one can break what God has joined together. Only through unfaithfulness, which means the marriage union is already broken by adultery, or because of such willful desertion as can in no way be corrected by church or state. Only when then may divorce be entered into. But you must understand, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Marriage is not a sacrament. The Shorter Catechism defines the sacrament as a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to the believers. Marriage is not such a representation. Therefore, must not be held in the same way as a sacrament. Marriage does not represent, seal, nor apply the grace of Jesus Christ. It is only a picture of of the life God created for us.
Homosexuality is another contradiction of the creation order of marriage. God said a man was to lead his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. There's no place in scripture where you can just find justification for leaving to one, leaving, cleaving to one of the same sex. It's not there. Paul condemns such behavior in Romans 1, 26 through 27. When he declares God gave them these homosexuals up to their vile passions. He said even women were giving up the natural to what was unnatural. He made it clear men were giving up the natural use of the woman and burned in their lust for one another, committing shameful acts with each other. Homosexuality is a perversion of the order God established by which men were to live. It is a sin of great destructive power. It must be avoided. Why? Because God's purpose in this world is to shine in the lives of men and women. We find in God's ordering of marriage and the family a continuing significance in the purpose of redemption. I found this very interesting. It's through the propagation of the race that God fulfills his purposes in redemption. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, Just as he chose us in him before the creation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. He chose us. He chose us before the creation of the world to bring about his purpose. It must be understood he does not use means that are contrary to creation. He does not go against what he purposed in creation. He uses means that are in conformity with creation. In other words, somebody comes up with a new idea. That's not God. He's already given us all his ideas in his word. He does not go against what he has purposed in creation. He uses means that are in conformity with creation. He carries out his purposes, the main one being the redemption of a people to himself through the methods ordained in the creation mandates. Therefore, it is through marriage and the propagation of the race that this purpose of saving a people to himself is carried out. Even the coming of the Redeemer was through this union of marriage. Marriage must be regarded as an important part in God's creational ordering of things. Why? Because this creational mandate has always had and will always continue to have a binding importance on men and their redemption. We look next look at the, the, the creational ordinance of labor. God gives man a command in regard to the creation. He is to tend the garden and subdue it. God created man in his own image. and This leads to man's unique responsibility to subdue the earth and rule over every living thing. What man was to accomplish through the, this rule was to bring about all the potential in creation which might offer glory to the creator, to God himself. I think you can see that having such a duty clearly given to man in these creation ordinances will have a continuing effect on his entire life pattern. 
man was commanded to tend the garden. This command was to direct man toward his ultimate goal, his goal of enjoying his life in the context of God's creation. So we see that labor is a principal means through which man enjoys the creation and thus the creator. We also understand in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that the New Testament upholds the creation mandate of labor. This is not just a legal requirement. It's an integral part of man's role in this life because he is created in the image of God. You were created to work and through that work to honor your God. This last ordinance to establish is the Sabbath. There can be no doubt this ordinance is rooted in God's creation activity. It's a part of our our work of worship. God worked six days creating all things. What did he do on the seventh day? He rested. He set a pattern, a pattern to be followed by all of his creation. You should be able to see the significance of this Sabbath principle. It is shown in the ordering of six days of work, one day of rest, through the actions God took as he blessed the Sabbath and sanctified it. Jesus shows in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This was good for man and all of creation that God gave the Sabbath. In the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment deals with the Sabbath. It uses the creational character of the Sabbath to validate it. It is because of the work-rest pattern God created that man must, as Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11 explains, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It even says the animals are to be a part in this rest, clearly showing God's intention to bless all of creation through this one day. The law of Moses expands this idea. In the law, it speaks of a Sabbath of years. Every 70 years, they were to celebrate a Sabbath year. Every seven years, I'm sorry. They were to to celebrate a Sabbath year. Then every 50 years, a Jubilee Sabbath. The Sabbath year was to give the rest, the land a rest. They would plant crops for six years. On the seventh, God promised them that there would be enough left over for them to get through the whole year as they let the land lay fallow. Then every 50 years, there was a Jubilee Sabbath. That Sabbath year was to give the land a rest. The year of Jubilee was to be a special year every 50th year. Note, this was, not, this was the first year of the new period, not the last year of the old period. The trumpet was to be sounded and liberty proclaimed. All debts wiped away and everything started over new and debt free. That sounds like a real good principle to me. Wish we still had it. It was to be the year of new beginnings. Christ chose a passage from Isaiah that dealt with Jubilee to announce the beginning of his ministry. It's Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted or proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Christ 
came to direct his people to the true Sabbath. The true Sabbath, the real rest man needed, was rest in him. The old covenant idea of Sabbath was always looking ahead to the day of rest to come. Therefore, the day of rest was Saturday, the last day of the week. That was the, 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 when the seven years were, were in effect, and you let crops grow for six years, and then you rested for that seventh year of the land. The same way the Jubilee Sabbath started a new period. This clearly declares the reason for the Sabbath relates not only to works, but also to redemption. God gave rest under the old covenant as a symbol of the rest to come. It was a foreshadow of what Christ would earn for you, a real eternal rest. In the new covenant, the rest has come, and it came in Jesus Christ and his works. Your true rest as a believer begins in your redemption as it is purchased by Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of creation is to develop a people for God. Redemption recreates out of this sinful world a people of God. Therefore, you should see in each case the Sabbath plays an integral part in that creation. Jesus, through his resurrection and victory over death, produces the fruits of God's redemptive purposes. Understand, his defeat of death is an important act, an act of God's sovereign grace, as was his creation. It's by his resurrection, a new creation, a new year of jubilee is brought into being. A new beginning from all of God's, for all of God's people is made possible through him and through him only. Believers see history from a different perspective than the rest of the world. They don't, as Dr. Robertson points out, look forward to a redemption which is yet to come. They don't simply hope for any eternal rest. They look back to a redemption that has already come. And they lift their voices in worship to a God who has provided for their life with him. Before you on this table this morning is the picture of your redemption. And the call is clear. You can come to this table and find the rest and peace of eternal life. You come here to worship the one who made possible by his life, death, and resurrection everything you could never accomplish for yourself. In him alone is your eternal rest. Because of his works, we no longer rest and worship on the last day of the week. We come to the rest and worship on the first day. Then you go, we go joyfully into the other six days of the week. We enter that day knowing that our rest is already won by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We celebrate a jubilee every week, a new beginning. Don't let the world tell you Monday's a terrible day. And I know we've all said that. But it should be the, one of the best days of the week for you because you have just worshipped your Lord, you've heard from him, and now you're being sent out into the world to do your work and to be a witness for him. Monday ought to be a great day for us. We ought to be looking forward to it. It should be a great day of blessing for all true believers because you have entered another week of life and the joy and peace of your Savior. You are in Jesus Christ, ever moving forward toward the fullness of this eternal rest. You're looking at the ultimate fulfillment of God's purpose and redemption 
making you a true child of God. It's important that you understand not only was there a solid structure for this covenant of grace, there was also a very different focal point. In the garden, the focus was the command not to eat of the tree of the good and evil. The point of interest is on the probation of man. Man was to marry, labor, rest, and obey his creator. He was on probation in the garden. Would he obey or not? He was given all of the bounty of the garden with one exception, the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. Under his probation, Adam had a lot of responsibility, such as to tend the garden. He was also to teach his wife, raise a family, worship God, and in all of these things bring glory to God. In this was a total plan to give God all the glory and honor. The covenant life was to include a total life relationship. Adam was man's federal head. He represented all of mankind. The covenant life was to include a total life relationship. Adam was a man that was appointed by God. But you must understand, Adam was not every man. He had faced a choice concerning willingness to submit to God's word that was totally unique. Today, you don't have the same choice Adam had. Adam's choice was unique. He failed, plunging all of us into his sin. And therefore, we have a different type of choice to make now. We have a choice to believe and trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone to overcome our sin. When Adam failed, all men failed through him. The total life involvement with a covenant relationship gives a framework. In that framework, you can see the connection between the Great Commission of the Old and New Testaments. Did you understand the Old Testament had a Great Commission? You must understand the cultural mandate to populate the earth under both Testaments. They are not two separate things. They both had one goal, to populate God's kingdom. There is no way any man can enter God's kingdom without first being given physical life, and then without faith and repentance, he will never be a part of this great blessing of eternal life. The Great Commission requires not just witnessing, but also the teaching of the gospel and disciplining of men. To teach them all things means not only to teach them the gospel, but also to teach them about their cultural obligations, which come under the covenant of grace. The redeemed man must fulfill the commands of the covenant of creation. He must do this if he is to bring glory and honor to God, for that was the purpose for which he was given. If Adam had not eaten of the tree... Now understand this, if Adam had not eaten of the tree, he still would not have fulfilled all the obligations before God. By refusing to eat, he would have shown himself to be submissive to God and assured the provisions of the covenant of grace, which was eternal life. All that had been created, and it was created for man. 
The blessedness of the garden is what caused Adam to stumble. You realize that? Prosperity makes the church shrink. You start having persecutions, it grows. He confused, he, he, he confused where his blessings came from. And thus confused the creator with the creature. He saw everything as equal to God. He saw himself as equal to God. This was the essence of his rebellion. We find that the scripture calls Christ the second Adam. In other words, he came to do what Adam failed to do. He came to bring men to eternal life. Christ came without any of the glory he had with the Father. He entered this world as all men do. Christ was deprived of much of the material sustenance of this world, where Adam was overwhelmed with it. Even Satan, when tempting Christ, suggested to Christ that he use his divine powers to provide for himself, but he would not. Christ rejected the temptation with the principles of God's word. He knew that man cannot live by bread alone, but must live by every word that comes from God. This was where Adam's failure began. What this shows about life is that it is only, as Dr. Robertson shows, by radical obedience. We need that radical obedience that life is to be lived in. This total obedience is the key to a godly life. If a man will show fully the lordship of his creator by obeying his word purely for the sake of obedience, he shall indeed experience the blessings of the covenant of grace in both of his facets, works, and redemption. You should see that the ultimate goal of the covenant of grace is to provide man with life. The covenant of grace, according to Dr. Robertson, is a bond of life and death sovereignly administered. Cursing and blessing, life and death, are choices offered in this covenant. We saw Adam fail, but God in his great mercy and grace provided a way for men to be saved from Adam's death. Once the initial covenant was broken, Dr. Robertson says, no way of relief could be found other than through a bloody substitution that was our Lord's sacrifice. Only as our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, bears in himself the ultimate curse of creation, which is failure. Only then can restoration be accomplished through Christ. Behold, all people of God, here before you on this table is the prepared Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world it is in him and in him alone that our assurance of hope, hope of eternal life can be found. Christ is the only way, friends. That's what all of this is doing. It's pointing us to the fact we need Jesus Christ. Covenant of grace is given to give us life, to prepare us. The covenant of works was to show we couldn't really gain that on our own. The covenant of redemption was to show us Jesus Christ came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. In conclusion, please listen closely. God sent Christ into this world to give his life for all who would hear his call to believe in him and repent of their sins. The call is clear. 
Turn from your sinful, selfish ways and stop trying to provide for yourself salvation. Everyone who acknowledges a sin and rebellion against God will know salvation. On this table is the picture of all Christ has provided. Here is represented Christ's perfect life, his atoning death, and his resurrection victory. Rest. Eternal rest. From all works of salvation. Do you understand what that means? All works of salvation? You don't have to work during your salvation. It's by grace. It comes from Jesus Christ and the works that he has did. He has done for you. Please open your ears and hear his call upon us. Open your hearts and accept his invitation. That alone is what will bring you salvation. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we are filled with joy as we come to your word and worship. Thank you for helping us to worship you as you have called us to do. We thank you with all of our hearts for your love and wisdom. We thank you for this table you have provided to show us how much you love us. We know that the salvation of our souls comes not through works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This table shows us all he did and why he had to do it for us. Help us to ever keep our focus on Jesus and all he did. We need you, Father. We need you in our hearts if we're to walk with you. Fill us now with your spirit. Guide us in our walk. In Christ's name, amen.